Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Hi, listeners. You're going to get two hellos today (laughs) because we had a wonderful reporting that is going to be two parts. And we realized that we needed it to be two part. Like we were just like in the zone. It was just Um, (laughs) like, I mean, you guys are going to be so excited. We were like almost fangirling in a way. Like we were so excited for this guest. Oh, I absolutely Um, was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it just was something that we realized we wanted to make sure you guys really could pay attention to everything we're talking about, which is why we're breaking into two parts. So you don't feel like you have to sit on for an hour to listen because it's just, it's too good. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is perfect timing. We have gotten through the majority of the school year. Most everybody is out on summer break and it's just a a good little palate cleanser. I think Mm -hmm. Um, our guest was an absolute delight, real salt of the earth kind of person. So let's get into it. Part one. Enjoy. Welcome back, listeners. I always say we have a big episode, but this is a big episode. No, I, this I, is a big episode. I, I think we're just going to do our shtick. Right I know, <laughs> I know, I know. We were going to do our shtick. But this kind of is reminiscent of the energy, the buzziness that we get when we go to COPA every year. Obviously, the last couple of years, we have not been in person. We have attended just virtually. Our hope is that next year we'll attend in person. But that's the kind of vibe I'm getting today yes. <laughs> with our guests. So let's get right into it. Straight out of Denver, Colorado, we have Mr. Jack Robinson. He is a partner and co-founder of Spires, Powers, and Robinson. And his name might be familiar to you because in March of 2017, he has taken Andrew F. all the way up to the Supreme Court and is getting a decision about it, which I think for us is like the end all be all right. When we talk about the big cases in special education, I know that you guys have heard us talk about Andrew F and we have the man, the myth, the legend on. Thank you, Mr. Robinson, for coming onto our podcast. Well, sure. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the background kind of going in to the case at its beginning? I mean, Was it something that you expected to be a big case? Was it just a normal case for you? What was that like at the beginning? That is a good question because it's probably the best place to start is I would, you know, take it back, you know, a little bit further back than this, this Andrew F case. It, you know, really sort of the impetus for it was, you know, back in the early 2000s, I had a case called, you know, it was Thompson School District versus Luke P., Luke Perkins, who was a, you know, a case that I had. Luke was a, another young boy with autism, you know, more in a rural part of Colorado. And, you know, he had significant, you know, behavioral concerns, real difficulty learning at school, generalization skills, that type of thing. And we brought, we brought a due process complaint in that case. And we won at basically every level the school district kept appealing. And 
so, you know, the parents kept, you know, sort of, you know, fighting for this. And it, it, that case went all the way up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, sort of the highest court in our area outside mm-hmm. of the U.S. Supreme Court. And, you know, we had won, I guess, three or four cases because we had a two-tier due process hearing system back then. Okay. So anyway, go to the 10th Circuit. We already won several times. We thought it was would be a slam dunk. Yeah, feeling pretty uh, good. <laughs> but it wasn't, right? And, yeah, yeah. and the 10th Circuit reversed all of those wow. other judges and said, you know what? Let's first take a look at what is you know, the IDEA require with regard to a a free, appropriate public education. What is an appropriate education? And the judge, there's a three-judge panel, but the judge in that case was Neil Gorsuch, Mm -hmm. a Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. He decides, after looking at a number of cases, he decides, you know what? The IDEA doesn't provide that onerous of a standard for an appropriate education and basically develop this merely more than de minimis standard. Basically, that if a child is making some progress on some goal in his IEP or her IEP, then that's sufficient and the school district doesn't have to do anything more. I was devastated by that. You know, I knew, I mean, that that standard was so low. Absolutely. That that any school district, right, could show that the child who's been working on something for a year, right, could could show some progress. So what, what would a parent do? So anyway, that case certainly was on my mind when this NREF case came about and taking a look at, you know, Drew's school records and figuring out what to do for them is because in, in Drew's case, there was no progress, right? There's no right. reporting. There was no, you know, nothing that showed that he was making any advancement on any of his goals and objectives. And at the same time, his, you know, behavioral challenges, his behavioral functioning was regressing, you know? And so I thought that here, here's a case that would not even, you know, rise to this level of merely more than de minimis. And I remember during one of your presentations at COPA, when you're describing Gorsling, like it was as if like we have a gas tank and you're just like running on fumes is like, you're almost on empty. And that's essentially what this standard created. Right. And it was just like so cavalier. It just, and it reverberated, right? The 10th Circuit, we in California obviously are in the 9th Circuit. And just for our listeners, you know, it is kind of the land, law of the land for the, it kind of trickles down, right? To all the states that are within like the 10th. But, you know, other district court judges are looking at this and saying like, oh, okay, here, you know, and they're trying to apply it, you know, that they don't have to apply it. But I mean, it really like shook a lot right. <laughs> with that, you know? So yeah, you know, you have Drew and I know that you kind of have talked about, it was pretty eye-opening that it was almost as if the school district kind of was telling the parents we don't have to. And I think I'm kind of skipping ahead. So parents are going to these IEP meetings. He's having the same type of goals every year. What is the turning point for parents for them to come to you? Yeah. So, you know, he was, so Drew was in the same school district from preschool, say through the end of a fourth grade, you know, mm-hmm. and, and obviously the, you know, the parents were very involved with the school. They lived down the street, They had another child that went to the school and, you know, you have your annual IEP meetings, your triennial IEP meetings. And, you know, they noticed that 
you know, sort of first grade, second grade, third grade, their IEPs, that the goals and objectives, you know, just didn't change and that they're basically provided the same, in essence, the same IEP year after year. And yet the most concerning thing was, was that Drew's behaviors were, were deteriorating, you know, that he had these sort of significant uh, fears, flies, going to a public, you know, bathroom at school, things spilling over, those types of things that that really, you know, would disrupt his ability to learn, you know, that something would happen or like he couldn't go to the bathroom at school. So he'd have an accident, he'd have a meltdown, they couldn't get him regulated, they call the mom, mom would come and pick Drew up. And that's just how things were handled. So anyway, mm-hmm. this was, you know, going on over a period of time where they're like, you know, you're not addressing his behavioral functioning, you know, and it's getting more problematic. And we've basically shelved, you know, really working on any academics. And and so they removed him, you know, from school and placed him at Firefly, which is a private school that specializes in the education of children with autism. And, you know, after the summer was over, or the first, you know, after summer, because they, they removed him in May, say, and he was at Firefly over the summer. And so in the fall, they basically, and this is before I was involved, you know, they invited the school district folks, you know, to come to Firefly and have another IEP meeting. And, and basically their hope was, was they were going to be amazed at, you know, how Drew's behavior has had turned around through absolutely, yeah. Through ABA, that now he could go to the bathroom at school, that he could deal with, say, a fly coming mm-hmm. into the classroom and, mm-hmm. and not have it disrupt his whole day. And so the school district team and the Firefly team, the parents sat down and, and basically the school district said, eh, you know, we believe, you know, what we put on the table is good enough. And so you can either come back to the school under that same IEP or, wow. you know, you can stay at Firefly. And so after that meeting, they contacted me and and said, is this right? I mean, do we have any rights here? Can we challenge that? And yeah. And so that's, you know, and my first call was to their attorney to say, look, you know, here, can't we work something out? Right, <laughs> right. Know, seems pretty straightforward to me. Yeah, um, but I think that's what's so relatable about you as an attorney. And, and I remember from the conference, you just saying like, look, I'm just this attorney that's just trying to fight <laughs> for kids, you know, and then, it, you know, I get to the Supreme Court, but, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself. But yeah, I mean, that's such a move that Amanda and I would make, right? Hey, yeah. nobody wants to yeah. be litigious. Nobody wants to. I mean, a lot of times we've, you know, now that we've been doing this for a decade and change, um, at least Amanda and I, we know the people on the other side. And it's just so much easier to pick up the phone and say, hey, what's going on? But it sounds like the response was kind of like, yeah, no, you know, they offered what they offered, take it or leave it. That that kind of sounds like what the approach was or the response was. And I think too, you know, that Luke P, you know, Mm. more than de minimis, say standard really, did come into play there, right? They're saying, look, what are you going to do? You know, we're, you know, the standard is so low that, you know, we feel confident that, you know, we're going to prevail. And and they didn't, they wouldn't talk to us at all. You know, we filed a due process complaint and, you know, obviously it triggers mediation and they agreed to go to, to mediation. And, you know, even a mediation, we're like, look, we want to get this resolved. We don't want to yeah. go process hearing. We want, you know, we can work this out. Parents certainly were not 
you know, litigious or, you know, mm-hmm. wanted to go through this process. They're very private people, but they, you know, they wanted to do what was right by their son. And, you know, we basically got the door slammed in our face every step of the way. And that's what's often so disheartening about this field is that, you know, the concept of what's right by a child is completely thrown away, even though these are supposed to be educators who went into this field to do right by kids. Now this like, well, we can prevail at hearing because the standard is so low that trumps anything when it's like the amount of money that's spent on attorney's fees to litigate these cases over sometimes very small amounts of money to do what the family is asking for in the first place. It's really hard to grasp. Do you get that in your regular practice? You see like, well, aren't you guys supposed to be helping kids? Like, do you ever feel that way too? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I also, you know, I've been doing this a long time too. And I, I certainly understand and respect the fact that, you know, people, one can be well-meaning and they have a disagreement as to what is right, what's appropriate for a child, including, you know, what a child's say potential is, what the best approach is to move towards that, that potential, that whole thing. I do think that, you know, all right, a parent, and this is, you know, why you guys exist, why I exist, you know, is to challenge that. And, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I find, and I'm sure you guys do too, that I don't know that there's this, there's obviously an attitude mm-hmm. on the district side that this is what we do. This is what we went to school for. This is what we get paid for. Leave us alone. Yeah. And, you know, let us do our thing. And yes, we have to allow you to have meaningful participation at an IEP meeting, but, you know, what we say goes. I mean, if you don't like it, uh, here's your procedural rights and you can fight it. Now, it's not always like that, but I think, you know, at least in my world, when parents, you know, get to me type thing, it it does feel that way that, it's just like it's our way or the highway. Yep. And they double down and, and just sort of dig into their position, whether they go to bed thinking that they're doing the right thing or not. I don't know. Right. I know we, right. we say well, that. Well, they, a lot they too. make these statements in IEP meetings and mm-hmm. you know, they're so afraid of walking that back or admitting that they're wrong that mm-hmm. they'll take it as mm-hmm. far as up to the Supreme Court rather than yeah. like let's take a step back and think maybe we make mistakes. Not everybody knows. I mean, just the spectrum of disabilities that are out there and the variety of needs that kids have, you're not going to get it right every time. No one is. You sometimes have to ask questions and be curious about how we can be doing things differently, but that's not the state of our education system right now. And, you know, and on that and to compromise too, is to say, Hey, look, yes, you know, maybe I feel like I'm right, but, but maybe I'm not, let's try your approach. Yeah even though it's different or it's outside the box or it may cost a little more, let's try your approach. And, you know, and if it shows promise over X period of time, then that's great. We can celebrate and we can, you know, I don't know, take that approach. Or if it doesn't prove to, you know, bear fruit type thing, then I don't know. You know, I just do not feel like that there's a lot of sort of collaboration in that regard or, or willingness to, whether you admit you're wrong or just willing to, hey, look, let's listen to the parents and or their parents, the parents experts and go that way. 
you know, and another thing I'll just say to, to me, maybe more of the school focused <laughs> listeners of yours <laughs> that I thought of when you were just talking was, I don't know, and maybe you guys get this as well, that, you know, parents will be told by, say, a special education teacher or speech language pathologist or a paraprofessional or somebody that's that you know, here's what's going on in class, or if it mm-hmm. were up to me, I would do X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then you get to an IEP meeting and they sit there with their hands folded and they look, yep. look down the table Ugh. to the case manager, to their boss, and they're yep. willing to, to stand up and say, hey, look, yep. but let's, because I guess my point is, is that there should be a discussion, right? There can be disagreement. There can be different other people's voices as opposed to just the parent's voice on one side and then this sort of coalesced unanimous voice on the the school district side. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it should be us versus the problem, us being the IEP team, the parents, the teachers, the principal, everybody against whatever the issues are. And it's very much this us against them mentality, us being the district and them being the parent, right? And it is really disheartening. And I think because of our lived experiences, which we do talk about a lot, you know, we're not saying all school districts are like this, but a lot of times it's top down, right? When you have an administrator that excludes the children in the special day classes from the assemblies who, oh, we forgot to let you guys know about that. You know, it's just, it really just kind of is throughout that culture. And, you know, a lot of times we have parents and the only way that they get their voice heard is if an attorney is sitting in that room or sitting on that Zoom with them. And yeah, I mean, we always say that this is why we have a job. We shouldn't have a job. The (laughs) district should be able to do what, you know, is in the best interest of the the child or what is appropriate for the child. Yeah, I mean, they are the the educators. They are the professionals, right? Like they always tell us they're the professionals. Well, yeah. Well, okay. So like, let's get back in. So just to kind of also give a little bit of context, when you are filing this complaint, is it like 2010, 2011, or am I wrong on the timeline? So it was February of 2012 when we actually filed the complaint. They removed Drew in the spring of 2010. Okay. And so part of that too, just on that, right, is because they contacted me after this November 2010 IEP meeting. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talked about is exactly what we were just talking about before, I guess, is to, are we right? Are they right? You know, Mm -hmm. is drew going to make that level of progress that that really you know would justify making this request and i know Uh you guys know that all right just because a private school can make you know better progress or do a better Mm -hmm. job a public school that that's not the deciding factor right that doesn't mean the day but at the same time if you can show you know a very stark before and after picture you know you know, judges will listen to that and say, look here, yes, these behaviors are, can be addressed and you fail to address these behaviors and with the behavior intervention plan, mm-hmm. you know, functional behavioral assessment and a behavior intervention plan, we can address these behaviors and the child can gain more academic, you know, progress than mm-hmm. what you were doing before. So anyway, long way of saying we did, purposefully allow a certain period of time to pass right. in order to get that data, to get that confidence that he can achieve at this much 
higher level than sort of the stagnation that he was embedded in in public school. And so just to kind of put some more color on this for our listeners. So he's filing the due process hearing complaint in 2012. This obviously started a couple years before that. We're not getting to that beautiful March 2017 decision until like five years from now. <laughs> like right. it, this is not a short, like this is a feat. This is not by any means something that's very quick, even for that kind of administrative hearing, right? A couple of years had, had to go by so that you had the data so that you could kind of be in front of a judge and really make them understand for this particular case this is why the parents, and at that point, you're seeking reimbursement for the private school and then for him to continue right. in the private school. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. And not to, like on that, which is a very important point too, and, yeah. and certainly not to deter anyone from embarking on this, say, journey if right. that's what's necessary to, to fight for your child's rights. But, you know, the the IDEA, obviously, the hearing process has a very short time frame, right? From the filing of the due process mm-hmm. complaint until not only the hearing, but you actually get a written decision in hand is supposed to be 75 days, right? So that's what two and a half months. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you file an appeal, you file an appeal to, say, US District Court, mm-hmm. that appeal can take forever, right? And this appeal in Andrew F took over a year to decide. I mean, it's, it was briefed, you know, we did all we had to do in a very short period of time, but then the district court judge just sat on it and didn't issue a decision for, I don't know, over a year. And there's nothing a parent or even the school district can do to move that along. You're basically just waiting for a decision. And so, you know, and Also, with regard to the timing, just on that is that, all right, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court and Andrew F. rejects, you know, the merely more than de minimis standard is is basically not being a standard at all and Mm -hmm. and adopts uh, or establishes a markedly more demanding standard. But the Supreme Court doesn't decide, you know, whether this IEP that was in dispute, this 2010 IEP that was being challenged, whether that met the new higher standard or not. So the Supreme Court remands that or sends that back down to the 10th Circuit. The 10th Circuit had us do briefing on that, which took some time, took some energy. And then the 10th Circuit sat on it for a little while and basically said, hey, look, that's not our job either. We're going to remand it down to the U.S. District Court to make that decision. The U.S. District Court had us brief it all again. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) The school district at that time, the school district's attorneys were arguing to the U.S. district judge to remand it again back down to the administrative law judge and to have a whole new hearing on it. And the the district judge rejected that. (laughs) So that took some time. So we had oral argument. And then finally, the district court enters its decision on the new Andrew F. Supreme Court standard and rules in our favor. And then after that, the school district appealed that to the 10th Circuit. So here we go, you know, we're going back up again. And then finally, in the middle of the that second 10th Circuit appeal, we settled it. Settled the case. Which is just wild. Like when we talk to parents about just 
the sheer length and cost of litigating these cases and the difference between that and like what you're actually getting or what you're actually asking for. Like this is, we tell families like these school districts in some cases, like are not really thinking logical. Like the amount of money that they spent on the appeals and litigating this for what you were asking for in the first place, like what they could have settled that first phone call for, like all that money could have gone to so much more support. And, you know, we in California, like office of administrative hearings, like our litigation, we consider sometimes it's a joke, like they don't follow the rules of evidence. It's a mess. And so we tell families like, look, you know, we could spend years and years and so much money litigating these cases, but like, look what it's doing and how long it takes. And so like kind of weighing those factors and like, of course, if the district is not willing to settle, they're not willing to settle. So there's, there's not much you can do about that, but it's just so wild when we think about these cases and just how much money they cost. And I think it's important to note that, and Ms. Robbins, you had said this before, you know, these parents weren't super litigious. They didn't start this entire thing thinking we're going to the Supreme Court. And and I'm sure that wasn't your thought either. Right. And, you know, you weren't setting out to change, you know, things you just really wanted to get Drew, like you said, into the placement that he needed, just get him what he needed. And I think that that takes a a special kind of family who, you know, had come to you and were just so pure in in their intentions, right? And I think that those pure intentions are what that kind, you know, the universe was able to kind of answer for you if you you believe in that sort of thing. And so you get finally, and so when was that, Tent search, you got back and you settled. When did you settle? When did the district attorneys finally say, oh, okay, let's settle this? Because <laughs> I'm sure you wanted to settle the entire know, right? time and stop going back and forth between the courts. What year was that? I think it was two, the spring of 2018. Oh, my goodness. So about a year after the Supreme Court's decision. So in 2010, around there, Drew is in like fifth grade. And by the time that this whole thing is done, he's out of high school. Right. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Like it's crazy. No, it's crazy. And and two, you know, you know, here we are talking about a private placement that, you know, the parents had unilaterally placed him at and was seeking Mm -hmm. reimbursement from the school district. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, obviously a parent has to have the wherewithal to do that from, you know, yeah. borrowing from family or, you know, here, mm-hmm. not let alone, you know, seeking legal counsel. And, and two, as, as I'm sure you, you all can appreciate, I certainly can. I'm a parent, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. difficult enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just yeah, absolutely. Parent, absolutely. Let alone, you know, sort of going against the all powerful school district and, and all of that, that that entails. And, you know, I wanted to say something that, that, when you were talking before that that made me think of, and it, it does relate to this Andrew F case, is that, you know, my approach, and I don't know if, if all special education attorneys say the same approach, mm-hmm. but, you know, a big part of my practice is civil litigation, right? And it's all about suing and being sued and, and mm-hmm. recovering money. That's all that that part of that practice is. Mm-hmm. Whereas with regard to special education, the IDEA, 
you know, more often than not, it, it's not about money. There aren't money damages, right? right yeah. No contingency fee cases type thing. Mm-hmm. So I do, having done this for, I don't know, 26 some odd years, do appreciate how difficult it is for parents, not only financially, but just emotionally and to say, and, and really to, and it's very emotional, right? For parents, yeah, they're absolutely. angry, they're, they're mm-hmm. you know, they're angry at a lot of things, justifiably so. And a big part of my job, I feel like, is to to get them to hear, what is it you want? If you had a magic mm-hmm. wand and you could get the school district to do what you want them to do, what would that be? Let's define that so we know exactly what we're fighting for. And from there, we yeah. can say, you know, is there a law that supports that, you know, will a judge, mm-hmm. you know, give us that remedy or that relief getting the teacher fired? Probably not. Let's put that off to the side there. Right. Or, you know what I mean? Or a pound of flesh. Let's, you yep. know, let's not dismiss it, but let's, let's put that over here and really focus on what it is we're fighting for. And is there a law that supports it? And if there is, how do we best go about achieving that, you know, just tomorrow turning around and filing a, you know, a due process complaint or a, a federal lawsuit, All right? Probably not. Let's exhaust every avenue to allow yeah. the yeah. well, to, you know, to do the yeah. right thing before we. Absolutely. Yeah. In our practice, we try to collaborate as much as we can because we always have this push and pull with our clients between, yes, there is a violation or a number of violations. Can we prove the violations most of the time? Yes. Yeah. But the reality is the remedy the family is seeking is not something that a judge is going to give you. And so there is that, you know, when we have the like discussions about negotiation and settlement and, you know, we've learned to have those tough conversations up front before the family even hires us of like, mm-hmm. look, yes, you have a strong case. Yes, we can prove it. Maybe they have tons of written correspondence. They have progress reports. They have outside evaluations maybe that can really show that the student didn't make progress or didn't receive services or was harmed in some way. But there is not that correlation the same way as other areas of law of like, what do you want to get out of it? And, you know, we can be as creative as we can in our requests, but it only goes so far as the district is willing to negotiate with us. Right. I mean, I think it's really difficult. And sometimes what is heartbreaking is at the root of it, the parent just wants their kid to be part of the community. (laughs) Like when we're talking about, you know, like inclusion and, or just, you know, what does that mean? That means, you know, being someone that is cared for and that, you know, we get the parents that are pissed off, you know, that's just how it is. And so it's hard not to take our lived experiences. And I keep saying that because I know that someone will write in and say, well, no, I have a great experience. Awesome. I'm so happy that you have a great experience. You have people that, you know, the stars have aligned, but for the people that we are helping, that is not their experience. And we cannot deny that, you know, whatever their experience is. And, and, you know, we say this a lot, we're counselors in every sense of the word. And I'm sure Ms. Robinson, you, you could feel this, especially with this family. I'm sure they became family to you (laughs) over the years. 